1: Mm -mm. and I'm telling you smoke anyway it gives ushers jobs and if people didn't smoke there would be no employment for the youth of today
2: so once again no smoking in this theater
0: Thank you very much for listening to Try love, a literal roundtable podcast about movies we saw or people we met at or through okay, the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at TrilonCinema and Trilon.org where you can get tickets and a bunch of other cool things related to the Trilon. My name is Jason Daphnis. I'm just a hack writer who drinks too much and falls in love with girls. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus.
3: I'm Cody Narvison. I'll be your dumb decoy duck, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH.
4: They talk about the people in the proletariat. I talk about the suckers and the mugs. It's the same thing. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Harry. My name is
1: Aaron. Uh, you can call me Holly Martins because I also wish that my friend Harry was dead. Uh, you can
0: find me on Twitter at rbplease. All right, we have a guest, but I just have to say, Aaron, holy shit. Uh, I, so, It's
1: a little rude. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How can I really not? Money. You <laughs> know, <laughs> like,
1: the, there's a guy named Harry,
0: you know, so, anyway. it was pretty good. You did, you did warn us that you had a good one, and you did. Uh, but no, more importantly, on this very special episode of Try Love, I think this might be the first time we've ever had two episodes in a row that featured brand new guests, and I'm so excited to welcome another. Uh, Natalie Marlin is joining us on this episode. Uh, welcome, Natalie.
2: Hello, Uh, I am on Twitter at uh, at Natalie's not in it. And uh, I was going through the the archives of the podcast. And I saw that you do a little show each week. Last week, you had Hamlet. The week before that, you had something.
1: Oh, very good. Very good. Came prepared.
0: Came prepared. prepared. Yeah, this is more research than our guests doing. Uh, So Natalie, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came into the Trilons orbit
2: yeah so um i've i've always kind of been like a movie person but um i'm actually somewhat recent to the area i moved here around august of last year and uh uh, the, the Trilon was kind of like my introduction to the movie theaters around here because I, I moved in with my girlfriend who's been here like basically her whole life and was like when I first visited her over like the summer of last year she was like okay so while you're here you got to check out the Trilon and like we went I think the first thing that I saw there was playtime when that was running um, oh, yeah. but like since then it's been like a very sort of frequent visit I've already kind of like become kind of like a member and started kind of plotting out uh, <laughs> basically how to fit each screening each week around like my schedule. So it's, it's become like definitely a big part of my uh, routine in the area now.
0: Sick. You sound way better qualified than any of us to have a podcast about movies that play there, but Hey, you're in try loves world now, baby. Uh, thank you so much for joining and uh, for being on <laughs> our podcast. Um, I will let Aaron take it away to actually talk about what this movie is, but I will tell you, dear listener, that it is playing as part of the Carol Reed The Odd Man Out series, playing at the Triline. I believe there's one film left after the one that we're about to discuss today. So go to Triline.org, find that series, and find tickets to movies you want to see there. Um, Aaron, take it away.
1: Yeah, we are talking about The Third Man, the 1949 film, uh, directed by Carol Reed. Uh, The film follows an American author of Western pulp fiction uh, named Holly Bartons, played here by Joseph Cotton, uh, who travels to Vienna uh, shortly after the Second World War Uh, in order to find his good friend Harry Lime, uh, who has offered him a job. Um, After arriving in Harry's flat, however, Holly learns that Harry has recently died after being struck by a car, although Holly... Uh, begins to get suspicious when certain details of the death don't uh, exactly add up. He begins to investigate with the help of Harry's girlfriend, Anna, played by Alita Volley, uh, and Major Calloway of the British uh, Royal Military Police, played by Trevor Howard. Soon, Holly uncovers a conspiracy that challenges everything that he knew uh, about his good friend. Um, also... Orson Welles is in this. He, he plays Harry. Uh, he's not dead. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie and you're listening to this, I don't know what you're doing. Uh, but yeah, Orson Welles is in this. He's, he's also great. Uh, Third Man was is, is, you know, uh, critically commercially successful on release and has gone on to be recognized as one of the... Uh, great films, uh, uh, kind of of all time. And it's, it's well known for uh, a bunch of different stuff, Orson Welles performances, use of Dutch angles, um, a lot of different stuff. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed this film. Uh, but Natalie, uh, I guess, is the guest here. Um, what what did you think uh, uh, watching this film?
2: yeah so uh a a fun thing about me is i had known basically all the beats and rhythms of this film for years and years and years basically as soon as i had like gotten into film back when i was in high school but i actually had never seen it until it played at the heights uh last year Um, and that was like my kind of introduction to it and it, it very much kind of uh it, I I found myself very much taking a liking to it right away and uh, kind of as re-watch, rewatching it for uh, preparation for this I found that uh, it's wh- what I like about it is it feels very kind of mechanically tight for uh, especially like a 40s noir and the way that it kind of pivots once it does kind of hit the reveal of Harry still being alive when it does kind of allow Orson to show up kind of really gives the film, I think a lot of extra momentum as it goes into its uh, final kind of act. Uh,
0: I have to agree. And thank you for bringing up the fact that it is so mechanically tight. I feel like there is a point as far as my thoughts about this movie um, where like all of the tension that it was building in the first half or so before the Wells reveal, Honestly, in a weaker film, would have just like felt like, oh shit, I got forty five minutes left to this movie after the climax, after the reveal. But it does maintain that tension, that um, like drive through it, uh, like largely because of sort of the pieces that it's set in motion, and all the questions that it's left unanswered. Like, I feel like the the noir tendency there would have been to like have that reveal be boom, make the let the audience uh, sort of have their assumptions about about lime and about like his crimes and etc. Like, let let the thing be um, and then sort of die out, but it didn't, it, it, it maintains and it goes for another hour. And I did not feel the runtime. Um, I, it's not hard to see why this is considered one of the greatest of all time. Right. Um, uh, it's very entertaining to look at, obviously very like sharp and incisive writing characteristic of a lot of the time. Uh, it has that twist that still hits, even if you've already registered it. I, I knew the twist before I'd ever seen the movie. Um, and it taps into that very specific, uh, post-war, pre-Cold War zeitgeist, um, which of course many smarter people than I have uh, analyzed over the years, but um, it reminds me in that way, specifically like the time and place that it's showing. Of uh, and this is not a reach anybody's going to be surprised by, based on my previous comments on previous episodes of the show. But Stray Dog, it reminds me of Stray Dog and how, like, not in plot but in setting specifically and sort of in spirit of that society divided after conflict and like hasn't really had time to reform. Uh, and like how there are still deep divisions between and among sects of society and sort of the different people moving through it with it, excuse me, uh, throughout it, there's like the people in this movie, uh, greater society, they're, they're just too thankful to be out of uh, direct conflict, um, to realize that they've like, it's functionally the conflict that led to it has functionally broken the entire way the world works and the way that they like see and think of each other. Um. That is why I really want to talk about uh, the uh, chase scenes at some point in this episode, because they are really fascinating little peeks into that world, into the environment that reflects that sort of sh- fracturing social psyche, I think. And I might be reading way beyond my ass cheeks on that one. But um, it's like underneath that very, very narrowly focused plot is the are these like explosions of scene and of, um, uh, you know, just seeing the world and like how things are crumbling around them. I'm reading way beyond my ass cheeks. Don't use the chat function to own me. Harry, you can't you you don't have that kind of cachet. Um, But it is, uh, I think like the chase scenes are a great way to exemplify that and sort of let the movie bloom in a lot of ways. Um, They're not like, from a directing standpoint, they're not uh, like industry leading or anything, but they are still very, I think, they, they, it's one of the ways that it's managed, that the movie manages to um, sort of expand and contract in the right times to maintain attention and to sort of uh, recontextualize the plot, etc. cetera. Um, and thirdly, I'm, I'll keep this summary short. short. <laughs> Short by our standards, anyway. Um, that I want to talk about protagonist syndrome and how Holly has it real fucking bad in this movie. Um, the movie is kind of built with him as the center, as the cipher, and it like sort of carries all of its hubris, especially in the first act. About that, um, the fact that this movie ends with uh, with Holly waiting for Anna to like come down the boulevard and like fall into his arms or whatever, and she just keeps coming is just ugh just a really good i think embodiment of that that he the the part he saw himself playing in this story is not the one that was necessarily good or right or the way that he was supposed to uh sort of I, I guess it's not like he was in conflict with the world around him and his sense of like who he was to this story as a writer as somebody who was trying to get to the bottom of the thing as somebody who's like obviously falling in love with this girl um really like fascinating and fantastic uh cap to that well rather i guess maybe not cap because it didn't quite end but a fascinating way to stop that story um anyway uh final thought is that uh that MF's guy that nf's name really is fucking crabbing isn't it that guy the the butler guy the guy who runs the conference that that is a crabbing ass motherfucker that's a cool name that's but, a really but, but look I at his face and tell me that there's no, no you know no he looks he looks like he a crabbing yeah he yeah, looks like I a crabbing um what about dr
1: winkle Sorry, uh,
0: continue.
4: Well It's Winkle, Winkel. excuse me? You, oh, yeah, what did you know? <laughs> I
1: took German too and I still fucked that one up. Yes. Winkle and right?
0: Um crabbin'. Uh well speaking of uh, Winkles, uh Cody, give us your thoughts.
3: Uh Winkles, please. And thank you. Uh yeah, I've seen the the third man. I saw it one other time about seven or eight years ago, uh thereabouts. I always remembered Orson Welles' formal visual introduction into the movie. And I always sort of remembered the, um, just like the very distinct sli- uh, style that this movie brings, you know, the, the best sort of noir photography that you could really ask for. A lot of great shadow play, a lot of great Dutch angles. Um, the movie kind of trading your eyes to become fixed on a, a mysterious figure in the distance, those sorts of things. Um, and also the sort of things that are maybe more. Uh, unorthodox as far as like noirs go or at least like what we remember them for uh and i'm realizing now that i have not um said this out loud is it a, a zither it's not a zither is it it's a it it with like zither, like zither like zither, like zither
4: but with a yeah Ooh.
3: perfect it's, it's Ooh, like, like a that.
4: man it's the coolest word for the coolest thing huh doesn't that rock it is
3: It is. It's so good. And that being utilized uh, during particular stretches, both at the very beginning of the movie and then sort of the um, middle-ish as we're transitioning from Act 2 to 3, there are a lot of Manic, frantic, dreamlike, and like confusing situations uh, that are unfolding. And the, z- the zither only really adds to that, uh, to all of those feelings, um, you know, uh, jaunty sort of melodies that are underscoring these really dark and peculiar uh, occurrences. It, ma- it makes for really, uh, you know, engaging energy, uh, as do a lot of other kind of little things as we go. Um, the established, uh, geographic boundaries that we get at the beginning followed by the subsequent like language barriers that uh, our characters or at least our, American protagonist faces, uh, and those sorts of like, you know, hitting a wall. So you have to go somewhere else, uh, that those sort of foreground, the literal labyrinthian environment that we get, uh, in the film's climax. Um, all of that just feels really great. I, I like those as narrative, um, mechanisms, I guess. I, I like the sort of inserts of random background, nobody characters, uh, staring at this guy as he does, um, pretty much anything, even if they don't amount to anything that, you know, they, they get you thinking, they get you asking questions. Um, and you know, they, they keep you engaged. I was very engaged. Uh, watching this movie, and I, I I like it a lot. And at the end of the day, you know, it's a it's a movie about two homies who are who are just growing apart. You know, one gets really into his writing, the other becomes an, an evil capitalist. It's a tale as old as time. Uh, no, but I this as a this story is a sort of case study about you know eg- examining the rippling effects of like uh, however you want to frame it a death, a disappearance the severing of a a friendship or relationship um, and then sort of considering the effects that that has in a world under certain prevailing systems. I think that's, that's uh, really cool. Um, You know, even if we don't end on like a conclusive or satisfying note as Jason was talking about. um, Yeah. I found myself captivated all over again. And so I'm glad I got to revisit it and I can't wait to hear what everybody has to say about this movie. And uh, I should, you know, I should say now everybody, has that one shady friend named Harry. Uh, and it's time for me to pass the microphone over to this group's considerably less shady Harry. Um, so here you go, Harry. Take it away,
4: Harry. Well, maybe, despite having known me for so long you don 't know me as well as you think you do cody uh harry's are all creeps i 'll be the first one to tell you so uh good instincts um yeah I, I this is the first time i'd seen this movie, and um I was really surprised in a good way by it um it's it's maybe a little bit uh prejudiced of me to to say, but I know that this movie is a like a beloved within the British canon. It's like roundly considered one of the greatest like UK movies of all time. And to be honest, that that kind of signals to me that I'm not going to like it that much. Right. Like that makes me think of something like really quintessentially conservative, like the King's speech or something. Right. But so I was, I was really taken aback to find, and maybe this isn't surprising given that Orson Welles is in it and everything with Orson Welles seems to be inflected with this sort of like really nasty, uh, biting sarcasm that I like so much. But this is a movie that is like, like very contemptuous of world powers, uh, very angry with, uh, governing systems and how governing systems devalue human life, um, really angry about the ways in which systems have never really changed through history. And even after great periods of um, tumultuous uh, world shakeup, the the systems reassert themselves so quickly. Um, and it's a movie that like, it hates cops. It hates what cops do. Um, and it, it does all that without sort of like um, w- without making the, the proletariat, right? Like the worker in these, in these movie in this movie into something that's sort of like beatific or or infantilized, right? Like the 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 people in this movie are all like down bad, right? They're all down bad in very different ways. But like they're as the the characters themselves note, there are no heroes here, right? Like we've we've arrived in a world sort of beyond heroes. Um and I really like that about this movie. It just it feels so Conspicuously modern, right? Especially, um, Jason, as you noted, for something from the 1940s, it's like if there was ever a movie from the 1940s that was ripe for reexamination in t- the 2020s, it's, it's gotta be one like this, right? And it's, it's a really great city movie. It's a really great movie at making you a part of that city with the watching that goes on and the recontextualization of the architectural space that we inhabit and by the end of this movie, you come away with a different understanding of Vienna and what Vienna is and what it represents, and sort of like what the Cold War is going to be, um, or what the modern world post World War II was. And even my sort of like my sort of uh, pet theme, right, is that this movie sort of depicts how history hasn't really so much changed as now we understand what it always was a little bit better. Having experienced it's sort of like Dark underbelly, um, so I really like that I think that the movie does a really great job of taking you through the sort of ideology spatially right like this movie literally ends with a chase scene under in like the undercroft of the city um that we've spent the entire movie exploring the top of right like the pivotal sequence where they're looking down at the people takes place above the city uh, in a ferris wheel so like it's it's a movie that's like really really f- intimately interested in space and space usage. And I think that makes the, um, it makes the Dutch angle sing really well. And it's like, it's, it's really funny and really sarcastic, right? Like the Zither is like mocking this entire movie in a really funny, great way, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I, I think that that's like just a really fantastic use of that. And so, yeah, I would say my big takeaway was just surprise, right? Like this strikes me as the type of movie that would have been hated when it came out. So like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not, giving uh, audiences enough credit back then. Right. But like, it's so funny that this, this movie is considered like canonical when it's like, it's so mad at everything that would attempt to make it canonical, I guess. Um, But I'm super excited to talk about it with everybody. Uh, And I guess Aaron, what are your, well, let me come up with a good, uh, I see Aaron. He's, he's standing, he's in the shadows. I don't know who, who that is. And then uh, a light turns on and, Oh my God, Who is it? It's Aaron.
1: Yes. Hello, Harry. I've been watering down penicillin and selling it to poor people. Uh, You don't know this about me, but uh, uh, no. uh, Yeah, I I think my thoughts...
0: I knew knew that about you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Look, if there's one of us who's going to do it. Uh, No, uh, I I really enjoyed this film. I think echo kind of what the whole gang here has kind of been saying. Um, You know, I, I had not seen this. I was not even really too familiar with what this movie was apart from a few things I like my my first real like w- when we did the episode on the thin man back in the day I got it confused and I was like 2 minutes away from watching this instead of that and and then I like rechecked what we were doing so I was like this close to watching the third man for the thin man episode which would have been uh disastrous uh but other than that I mean there were a few things I think that I was like generally like familiar with through the the I don't know cultural osmosis um uh Orson Welles performance I had heard about, right? Um, uh, I think that, like, a lot of those elements that people typically talk about are kind of the things that that stood out to me. So it, it, I'm kind of having a, a bit of a trouble pointing out things that aren't like the things that, that supposedly everybody points out, right? The soundtrack is, I think, incredible and, like, this, this very, uh, like, very, like, the the solo instrument that's like so weird and so out of place and you would expect these like big strings and like these big moving, uh, kind of instrumentation, you know, instrumentation, uh, uh, to kind of carry the emotions of this movie. Um, but it instead kind of makes it all the more like sadder and like, I don't know. I I really dug that. Uh, the cinematography is kind of doing a a very similar thing. I think that the writing specifically around this kind of post-war world, uh, is very interesting. Um, I will say that I, I think that that one aspect that is uh, maybe like underrated here is I think that jo- Joseph Cotton's performance is is very good. Um, I think a lot of that is the writing, uh, specifically the making is, him a. Is he Holly? Yes, he's Holly. Uh, yeah. uh, the character, you know, he making him an American, uh, specifically a Western author, is is I think very good at kind of um, so supports good, the, the themes of the film. Yeah, it, there's something to. Kind of chew on uh, on how this is this this very American way of thinking. Just it, not only does it not make sense in this post war society, but it also doesn't make sense in in a place with the complexities of Europe. Right? America has complexities as well, but the the narrative of the Western and of America is specifically kind of crushing those people uh, beneath a boot heel, right? Uh, that doesn't work when it's transported to Europe and this the city is sectioned off into four different pieces, right? Uh, I really thought that was interesting. I think my last point would be, I think someone who is uh, a little uh, uh, closer in geography to John Moret should ask him if there's some sort of uh, intention behind all of the uh, post-war society movies uh, playing at the Trilon so far this year. Uh, I think that uh, this, uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, uh, Possession, I think that those are like all very good like post-World War II kind of start of Cold War uh, films,
0: and I, I think there's he's, a lot of interesting he's things. He's trying to warn us. He's giving us a red flag <laughs> that something is about to happen, and he yeah, like, has a finger on the pulse. You're yes. Telling me,
4: you're telling me that that John Moret might be somewhat skeptical about our current administration? He might not think we're, we're quite out of the woods now that Biden has been elected and is the, the president?
1: I, I can't put words in, in John's mouth, but uh, uh, yeah, that... Uh, you know, I'm just going to say when we do our end of the year awards, uh, episode, I think we may need to have best, uh, best post-World War II film or something along those lines. But, um, yes, that, those are my thoughts. I'm really happy that I I finally got to watch, uh, the third man.
0: Yeah. Good Um, film. Quick, before we get into my actual, I have to, I have to get something off my chest. I, Logged this movie on Letterboxd, gave it a four, uh, even though I fell asleep in the middle of it uh, about two years ago, maybe. I forget exactly when I logged it, because I was watching it with my mom, and she likes old movies, and I felt like I needed to have something to say. So, uh, wow, that that is an incredible weight off my chest. Um, Natalie, uh, it seemed like, they're, uh, based on the hand that you had up, uh, that something among what the folks said here uh, struck something in your mind.
2: Yeah, yeah, there there are a couple of places that kind of I wanted to bounce off of, and that can maybe determine kind of like where we go from here. But like in terms of setting, that's that's one of the things that the more I've watched this, the more striking it is. Just for especially how uh, Reed renders the contrast between like the the day scenes and the night scenes, where in the day it definitely feels more populated like there are more people around but it also still feels kind of barren and that there's a lot of suspicion being cast onto holly just by virtue of him being an outsider and not knowing like the language that most of these people are speaking um but then there's also like when it's at night i feel like it really emphasizes kind of the the emptiness and the kind of uh harrowing nature of these of the setting um especially just kind of as nighttime cast these like long tall shadows over uh all these people as they're like running down the street and like participating in these chase scenes i'm thinking about like the the one particular shot of uh harry once he's running away after the reveal where basically his entire form is like casting this imposing shadow against the walls Mm -hmm. um but also um the other point that i wanted to bring up is kind of talking about the the film's own kind of um ambiguous morality specifically in regards to holly uh just because i feel like the the another thing that emerges the more that i watch this is that um holly himself kind of is emblematic of the film's own kind of ambiguities there in the sense that he's kind of pulled between all these different alliances and all these different um notions of kind of like who he should trust whose word he should take who he should kind of side with right up to the very end where even uh, after uh he's been told about uh harry's illicit activities he the first time that he goes back to Calloway he's saying that he knows all this stuff is happening but there's all this like years of friendship behind him and then he sides with Anna and then sides back with Calloway and it's this kind of push and pull that I think really kind of renders that last scene uh the impact that it does because right up until the end he's still kind of believing that he can kind of swoop in where he needs to and get to the ending that he feels like he deserves or get some kind of uh sense of forgiveness. Um, and I think one of, one of the key things about him being the protagonist that we see this film through is that we're kind of seeing his own kind of warped worldview of uh, how he believes things are going to operate and him being kind of out of his element as he's pushed into this, this social setting that he doesn't really have the ability to kind of entangle himself with.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's very much like, I guess that ambiguity uh, runs throughout the, like you said, the entire performance and like the entirety of, of, um, of his arc of Holly's arc. But it is like the inflection point, at least that I saw was, um, was when uh, Holly decides to, after the, What's his name? The cop Calloway decides to um, bring him by the hospital and show him like the victims of the uh, of the scam of the racket that um, that uh, Harry's been putting on, and that's where he's like, that's like okay, I'll, I'll work with you on this. I will be like the stooge. I'll I'll, I'll be the um, I'll be the contact, right? I'll I'll do the thing uh, up until that point. Even like everything, like he has the whole conversation on the uh, Ferris wheel. He's got. um all you know like you said warring uh conflicting senses of justice and like his role in this story kind of thing and i think i think that is feeding to the greater point uh that we're all kind of making about like he how he sees himself among this this plot right what what his role is and like how that is inflected by one the fact that he's american and you know in a place that he's never been to that is like experiencing incredible uh, social change uh, and to the fact that he is a Western writer or rather like we'll say like a a trash, quote unquote, pulp fil- uh, novel writer. And like sort of how he sees even he's even people even poke fun at him for it throughout the movie where uh, there's that repartee between him and Popescu at the at the conference. And he's like, I'm writing a murder story. It's based in truth. And it's like that sort of doublespeak that they've got going on. That's very Textual, I think that is like very smartly and cutely used in that moment as a tête-à-tête. But I think it is also very, very pointedly like that character uh, just written as it is. At least, yeah. Anyway, like I said, I'm not very good at talking about movies. Harry.
4: You're great at talking about movies. What are you talking about? Um, you called it main character syndrome. I really liked that. Um, I think, char- uh, Natalie characterized it exactly right, where it's like, I love how in the third act of this movie in particular, like, our man is just going wherever the wind blows, right? Like, his, his opinion on the situation is whatever the last person said to him. It's like he, he goes and he sees um, Anna and he's convinced one way he goes and sees Calloway. He convinces him another way. It's, it's so easy. And it's it's because like Aaron had said, it's like it's not just his sort of like black and white. Morality idea, but it is really like his, his drive to simplify, right? Like he needs this to be a story that he can solve and that he can be the main character of. He needs to have bad guys and good guys and this sort of like very clear denomination of right and wrong. And if he, if he can't get that, he's just going to make it, right? And like it's wild because like, and, and in the midst of all of this, um, Holly is also like maybe the most obvious uh POV character in a movie ever, right? Where like he is so clearly supposed to represent the audience, at least in my mind, I'm an ignorant American, he's an ignorant American. But like particularly in the first act of this movie, fully like half of it is in German and non-subtitled German, right? Like there will be people on the streets having entire conversations about the both the mystery and Holly himself right in front of him that he can't parse and you know, he, he tries to get people to translate it and they just completely like brush him off as if like the overwhelming implication there being like, you wouldn't understand it even if it was translated. Right. Right. Translatable. Like you, you moron. And it's so funny how he just won't get it. Right. And, and eventually I think that like, and again I think I think that the morality of this movie overall is definitely supposed to be um ambiguous but like it is really telling that Callaway who is sort of like representative of the instrument of the state right of like state violence and essentially tracking Harry Lime down because Harry like like violated their monopoly on state violence in many ways uh which and like but they they managed to leverage uh his buddy Holly against Harry by doing exactly what Harry or what Holly wanted from him. Right. By making this a story in which there are good guys and bad guys. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, I I love how, um, how utterly shameless he is about it too. Right. Because like we have that, that terrible, um, meningitis scene where he shows them the the kids who are dying of meningitis who received a diluted penicillin and it's so wild how like I, in my mind the, the movie makes this pretty clear even though they don't spell it out but it's like dog like the reason why meningitis are why penicillin is so scarce in the city is because of your shit like it's because the, the government yeah. is, is passing restrictions like the reason why smuggling is such a lucrative business proposition in the first place is because governments crack down on contraband right it's like literally they've got uh propaganda guys giving propaganda in the city they've cut this city into four different parts they're like it's a closed city they're manipulating who can get in and out they're manipulating who gets to live where like to the point where there's this this woman anna who's terrified that she's going to be sent back to Czechoslovakia because her papers don't check out right so it's like who is really responsible for the people dying in this hospital right it's like it's harry sure selling them this false promise that they're going to be all right if they buy this diluted penicillin but like they're not dying from the diluted penicillin they're dying from the diseases that they caught from being here and from not being able to receive treatment because the government is not treating them right so it's really great how like we we see this turn right from like this big structural problem that this this guy Callaway is essentially able to sell as the problem of a villain In the form of Harry, and he he turns him against him, and by the end, like Holly, still thinks that that he did it. Right? It's like Holly's upset about how everything goes, but he still thinks he's going to get the girl at the end of the movie. He's like, he's waiting for her. Like, well, this is the final scene in the movie in the western that I wrote. Like the hero gets the girl, and so that's like that great final refutation where she just blows right by him, right? And it's like, nah, it's not actually what you thought it was. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of great points there. Um, I guess just adding uh,
3: a few things onto the, I guess, ongoing discussion we've had about protagonist syndrome, and like, I, I think the movie itself um, the feeds into that, right? And like, especially upon re- repeated viewings, I like it, it even after so many years spent away from. The third man, they just like, oh, wow. like knowing that this, this turn is going to happen at, um, I made note of it. I think it's like an hour six, uh, on the dot, um, is when we see Orson Welles's, uh, goobery face, uh, make its debut. Um, but yeah, just like the movie feeds into that sort of like, oh yeah, uh, latch onto Joseph Cotton, um, We're going to, you know, like I was talking about earlier, the sort of little walls that uh, the movie gently puts up and kind of steers you to following a certain character, a certain conversation or a certain um, geographic location. Um, The non subtitling of the German, I think, is a great example of that. And honestly, the beginning of this movie is really like. It really hit me. Um, the the zither is coming in fast and strong. Um, I should have just said fast and furious. You know what? It came in fast and furious as well. Um, the the sort of narration introducing Vienna, which Vienna, this is another great like uh, setting as character movie. Um, so shout outs to that for being here. Um, but you know the little sort of uh, you know we we see uh, we see Holly Martins um, arrive scope the joint, he gets informed that this person that he's going to meet is, uh, has passed on and all of a sudden he's the focus and this, you know, this uh, Zither is just strumming along this weird, well, you know, we're going to tiptoe around uh, this, this Harry Lime funeral. Um, we're just going to keep going. This is Holly, the Holly Martin show. He's going to figure it out as he goes. And then all of a sudden there's this, you know, he, over the course of um, uh, speaking with, Oh, what's his name? Uh, Baron or not, not Baron Kurtz. He's with Baron Kurtz. Uh, you know, he, he meets, you know, he's with um, yeah, Baron Kurtz hey, and girl. Payne, uh oh well uh, that's a little bit later i like specifically uh, with him yeah him um you know he gets a lot of things happen at once right you know he is uh he is uh his friend he's at his friend's burial um he eyes this uh this woman anna who he doesn't talk to yet but then all, all of a sudden it's like in the lobby you know he gets uh this wealthy benefactor wants him to speak at a lecture he gets lodging this guy Payne really likes his work and it's just like a, like every everything's coming up holly you know everything's coming up martins in the moment it's just like this rep. i and i only sort of registered it or thought about it because like i was thinking about uh, like just you know what what do we need what does this movie need to do to like okay harry lime is dead so like what happens now um and right holly martins takes on the arrogant american uh point of view of like i need to like I'll, I'll figure this out, you know, and he, you kind of see that bravado um get a little bit more perpetuated after he, like, you know, oh, it's like, oh, and I've I've got lodging, and all I got to do is is speak at this lecture, and uh, which he eventually bombs out of because it's, uh, you know, that's what he thinks of it, and it's well, a narrative, you know, a red herring or, or what have you. So I don't. All that is to say, like, it the the. Uh, the movie feeds in, feeding into like the the Holly Barton's of it all is like a great attribute of this, and I I can't remember the first time I watched it. If I like looked uh, you know in advance and saw that like Orson Wells would eventually show up, but it's like very very possible that I mean maybe some of you here watching it for the first time just like oh yeah Orson Wells is in this movie and he shows up again sixty six minutes in just like I, I feel like in a lot of ways. We're made to. We're successfully made to forget about that. Um. Uh. With with Holly Martins being this sort of, um, flawed guide through this world. And yeah, no, I I like that
0: undermining a whole bunch. I do too. Um. It, what you're saying about how like. A lot of things happen at once. It's very like it tosses focus here and there, It how the plot moves, et cetera. Um, and that is, at least in my experience, my limited experience with noir, like sort of, you know, tropes of that anyway to sort of like toss the audience and sort of show them what, or sorry, not show them what you're not going to show them, not tell them what you're not going to tell them, and let things set up to be a really strong reveal. And it, while this isn't like directly along that path, it led me to think like, well, wait, my prevailing concept of this movie is that like, it's very tight. It's very like strong. It's very confident. It's moving in a direction, but then also at the same time, these like really like these one-off characters, these, uh, Randos, these, uh, you, you know, Baron Kurtz with his dog and, and the, I mean, they're all clues and stuff. They do add up to a conclusion, but it's making me wonder about something that Natalie said in, in her intro about, um, how like it is mechanically tight. I wonder, Natalie, could you talk a little bit to like, does that mechanical tightness uh, like is the role of that to bring all those things together to you? Does it uh, help you focus on just what you're supposed to at the time? Or does it set the stage for something bigger? Does it all feel natural or?
2: I, I think it's kind of a, a combination of all of those things, because I think for the the better part of that first hour, what it's doing is introducing you to all of these kind of like competing parties that all are at odds with one another. Um, specifically, all these different people, whether they're like affiliate with Harry, they have their own kind of national ties, they're beholden to the, the upholding the law. Um, and it's kind of it allows you to kind of get a sense both of kind of the, the interpersonal uh, conflict at play between these parties and how they're all kind of revolving around this same singular event, but also how they're kind of emblematic of the larger kind of divided conflict of the area. And then I think that in turn kind of allows the, the sort of how that conflict drives the last uh, act in particular Um it's it's interesting though because like one of the things that i i did catch on to uh in my my most recent watch is that it's it's funny that there's so much build-up about uh kurtz and propesco and eventually driving to the point where uh they're basically out to get holly because as soon as it's revealed that harry is alive they kind of they back off and then they're kind of unceremoniously arrested off mm-hmm. screen uh, right before the climax. And so at least for for them, it feels like they're less kind of significant to the overall plot of the film more than it's kind of larger uh, what, what it's saying in terms of the larger like social conflict that's been going on throughout that.
4: Mm hmm. That's a really great point. And it's also like, it's, it's, um it's part of the overall plot, right? It's like, these are the sort of like, those are the complicated old world forces that are profiteering off of the smuggling, right? And it's like, they are maybe the real power behind this whole operation, but they're like inconvenient, right? Because they can't tie together this, this really sweet narrative the way that Harry Lime can, right? Then it becomes this sweeping epic about betrayal and friendship and it's something that that factors in for um for joseph cotton holly martin so much better that way right it's almost like it's so funny to me in, in characteristically like sarcastic and and brutal the way that this movie in the first act prefigures so well everything that's gonna come. I mean like to, to Cody's point, like literally the reason Holly can still stay in this country in Vienna is because this guy comes up to him and is like, hey, uh I run the propaganda for the Brits here in Vienna and if you want to stay here, uh we can put you up, but only if you become an instrument for our propaganda machine. And Holly's like, well, I got to stay in Vienna. It's like, so what does he do throughout this movie? Right. It's even by the end, it's like he literally continues to stay in Vienna and is going to continue to perpetuate the narrative that was given to him. Right. It's like and there, there are so many examples of that. Right. Like, I really love the way that this movie um, has this opening monologue that that is so economic in the way that it sets the stakes, right? It's like this, it introduces you to Vienna post-World War II, the way it's been divided up and is slowly being eaten by these world powers. It like reminds you that Vienna is like the symbol of the old world, right? It's like maybe the, the great city of the old world. Um, and then it talks about how smuggling came to be this important thing because of the way that uh, the bureaucracies that are in the city are um banning so much contraband and by the end of it like we we get all of this and then it opens up right it like it does what natalie said early on where where it's like uh you get to see the city that you have just been told about and you get to be sort of like both over and underwhelmed by it right where it's like it's big but like it's too big for the inhabitants and there are all of these shadows and like there is there are all of these stories that are playing out but they're not really the stories you would think would be playing out in this sort of like classic city there's something else there's like an underbelly to it right and like it keeps cutting to the people in the city too right like this movie never lets you forget that cities are inhabited by people or made up of people and all of these people are similarly sort of like the public sphere in this movie is so important to it. Right. And I really love that. And I, I think that like, there's not a wasted moment to, to your point, uh, Jason and Natalie, right. Where it's like all of this, every single thing is like building towards this sort of like visual and narrative unification of the climax. Um, and so in that way, it it, like, it does a really good job of building what's to come.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, To that point, uh, one thing that struck me as particularly kind of funny that I did not even realize until looking into this more is that, um, with that narration at the very beginning, uh, that narration is not always, uh, the version that exists, uh, as it is across, like, home video releases, theatrical releases these days, what I assume is going to be the version that is rolling out on Trilon, uh, Because uh, prior to 1999, uh, the narration at the beginning is not Carol Reeds, but Joseph Cottons, and within the character of Holly Martins, which I think actually... Uh, at least on the the blue that i was using to watch this you can watch that as a special feature and it is very firmly like oh, wow. within his characterization
4: that is uh, wild
2: it's it the thing about it is that it doesn't quite make sense because as we've been talking about like the whole the whole point of his character is that like through and through to the end he's still not fully getting the picture of like yeah. what is going on here and so i feel like having that at, within his character i feel like doesn't quite add up where he goes the rest of the film um uh one other point i wanted to mention that i had forgotten to mention about kind of the the film's setting that i think is really compelling is as you're talking about with all these like um individual people and whatnot there there are these moments where it just kind of allows itself to unfold less about the plot and more about its setting and uh There are two particular elements of, like, the beginning of that climax that I think really stand out, uh, one of which is just in terms of the actual uh, city arrangement, like, it's taking place in these kinds of, like, bombed out buildings, these like destroyed uh facades where Harry is kind of like using to sneak about, which I think is a great way, like to the very end where Reed is reminding you that this is a city in the aftermath of war. Um but then another point of that, a more mundane one, is this um one one of my favorite characters in this is this man who is just offering balloons to the the British soldiers during this climax, who has the guy no rocks. real purpose, uh, (laughs) Beyond just existing here and just being a part of this city and kind of further developing it out, and I think that that's that's something that like reads is just kind of a little touch in terms of developing the setting rather than necessarily propelling the plot in that way. It's Absolutely. so good yeah. and that
4: that scene is so funny because like I was so sure that was Orson wells in a beard. I was like, "That's fucking Harry Lime. He's sneaking up on these motherfuckers." And then it was like, "No, it's just a guy selling balloons because he's trying to get by." It was so much. Much better you do. You do character. hope it
1: would be him in a disguise though, right? I like totally so still like kind full of
4: minutes. I was like Orson Welles is the disguise guy. Like, of course, this is going to be
0: what that is. Maybe the movie worked too well on me, but I did not. I didn't think that would like I, it went right over my head. If that was if that was ever going to be the way that this movie was going to go, it was not going to go that way for me. Uh, but I did like I really liked zooming on to that specific moment. I really liked for the exact same reasons you're mentioning, Natalie. I really liked that that character is given like a good Maybe 60, 90 seconds of like plot time, even if he's not on screen for that long, where it's just like, okay, we're dealing with seeing this guy and mistaking him for being hairy around the corner. Uh, and then not only that, he is then like also approached and he's sort of developed there. And it like, I don't know, it in another movie, in a less tight movie, in a less like, like I said, confident in a less sure movie, it would have felt like, okay, we're wasting a little bit of time on this guy. But it, it's in the moment, it's very tense. We're seeing all the main players, we're, we like know the purpose of the scene, mm-hmm. uh, and on top of that, they're taking that opportunity to to like you said, build the world a little bit. Um, and it is like it's playing, it's vibing, jiving really well with uh, how I generally felt about the setting of this movie. I don't know. Uh, my ass for my elbow when it comes to um, any form of expressionism, German or otherwise. But like a lot of the conversation that I read around this movie uh, in, you know, after having seen it is, was around, um, you know, it's like sort of blend of styles uh, and one of them being expressionism, sort of that very, uh, very present stylistic uh, visual aspect. Um, And that I think just because it is like a, 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 so many screens and so many settings of such dark and light contrasts makes it feel really like it suits uh, both the very claustrophobic scenes and the very open scenes very well. And that's like where where we're getting to sort of that like uh, expansion and contraction I was talking about earlier, where it feels like as soon as we get tight enough and tense enough, we're then carted away. Like I'm thinking about the movement, uh, the, the point where um, uh, Holly r- r- uh, arrives back to his uh, hotel and he's carted off by the, by the driver and he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't speak English. Uh, so he, you know, he starts panicking. He thinks he's going to be killed and then he's just being dropped off at the, at the conference where he was going to be, where he's scheduled to be speaking. Um, but like that moment is like almost a breather in some ways, even though it is like a built up to be a pretty tense moment. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm just musing more now than anything on like the overall setting of that. And uh, of like, I'm thinking specifically the concept of the third place um, being like not a place where work is done, not a place where rest is being done, but a places where communities can sort of exist uh, places where communi- communities can can be and become communities are, you see like the shells of them in this movie. And I don't know why, it feels important, but those feel important, like open town squares, um, you know, wide stairways that uh, have, you know, are only connecting two areas of commerce kind of thing. And that those being the kinds of places where Harry can best hide himself, like you said, Natalie feels very intentional, not just like stylistic, not opportunistic as like, oh, the the remnants of this former town, but like very thematically resonant in a way
4: and And also the people inhabiting those spaces, right like I think in in just about every scene of this movie, the movie pa- makes a point to pan or cut away to a montage of people watching the scene, and you understand that they are watching the story too, and coming to their own conclusions maybe and they're conclusions that are both valid and not our own in so many ways, right Like this movie also does this really classic thing where the the American cannot understand why nobody likes him and why everybody wishes he would just fuck off back to where he came from i have
1: that same i I do that though whenever i'm traveling you know yeah
4: well but but like yeah it, it does a great thing where it builds our understanding of that right Where like especially like uh holly martin's like straight up gets the dude who was in charge of that building killed and like the dude is is begging him not to do that he's like let me stay out of this let me stay out of this um later on everybody thinks that Holly was literally responsible as in he literally murdered that guy all of the the watchers and they think that because he's this american because he kept bothering him all of that and so like we understand so well because of the way this movie is shot even beyond what it's saying that like holly is this foreign agent here right he he is this interloper that is coming to shake things up and he is going to be used right like i think somebody even says like they're gonna find a use for you you know what i mean and and and, like the idea is is so clear that like the longer holly is here the more he is being leveraged by these powers toward this purpose right and it's it's fascinating the way that like the community plays into that. Right. And it, it comes to a head in that Ferris wheel sequence, I think where they're looking down at the community and uh, it's, it's interesting because Harry is, is there talking about how, um, how little everyone seems right. And we get to see that visually as well. And it really recasts the way that communities are versus the way that they are perceived by the people who are outside of them, whether that be world powers or, um, tourists or the governments that are in charge of corralling these people essentially it's a really fascinating um like repeated and uh continuous reframing of the the public sphere in relation to sort of like both propaganda and prevailing historical narratives i think
3: yeah i would agree with that um yeah, the, the sort of fascination that, yeah, this movie has with very pointedly and intentionally mapping out the environment. Um, you know, Holly Martin's, uh, aka the audience being able to, to see everything and everyone and everything and everyone being able to turn their eyes back on us, back on Holly. And, you know, I wouldn't presume to say that that's like the environmental mappings, you know, us getting a sense of the space is necessarily like, that's not Par for the course in any movie, uh, much less, you know, noir in particular. I mean, we did um, an episode a little bit ago on Laura and like, we definitely got a sense of the people, Um, the spaces, maybe not so much or or they were more so confined uh, in a, a few particular areas time is a flat circle and I'm already having a hard time remembering um, that movie in that discussion. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Feel free to listen to that. Did I just do a plug for the, for the podcast while I'm trying to make a point? I might've done that, but um, yeah, I guess like in the mapping of the, uh, that particular, like the, the mapping of the setting, you know, we're seeing where everything is. It also makes it more like visually, tantalizing as far as uh, like going back to the like the the american western and the sort of presumption uh from holly that he can come in and solve everything the fact that he had like you know that we get that uh narration at the beginning really setting the stage and and you know we uh, again getting a feel for the the history and the context of this environment and you know um People, uh, you know, the the people here in, in this place, yeah, you know, everything is in dire straits. This is, you know, right for somebody to come in and just, you know, figure this shit out. And like it, it, it again, I'll use the word tantalizing. It, like it, it, it's, it's right there. Um, and from Holly's perspective, to just like to wrap this up figure it out and like because uh my brain is broken and I can't help but think of things this way one of the one of my areas of study in school was statistics and so like I couldn't help but think of things as like variables and just like you can see everything you, like part of what makes uh what made me or what made Holly think it's like oh yeah okay I can figure this out like this is this person's story um, and like wanting to lock it down as like a fixed piece of information, which, uh, you know, unless it turns out they're lying, which it turns out, hey, a lot of people <laughs> are either lying or hiding truth. And like the, the most important sort of variable of all in this is that Harry Lyme is dead. And just like all roads lead to this one sort of like endpoint on the graph, right? Where it's like, you know, Orson Welles definitely isn't going to show up. He's not going to show his face around these parts. He's dead and gone. And then it's just a matter of like finding, okay, well, what's the like, what's the variable that like we can just plug into this like, um, you know, this graph of the story and just to figure it out. I'm going to try and shy away from using dumb mathematical terms, but like, what what happens when you know a constant turns out to be a variable? You know, a fixture turns out to be something just like floating in space and like that plays really visually into well well, visually well into these um you know the dark corners of the sewer of the city where like you know harry's looking to just like disappear again you know uh look to make an impact in his you know dirty greedy ways and then just like crawl back into a a corner somewhere so like the melding of those sorts of things and how they came together like visually and thematically is like it, it it's really really growing on me
2: um one thing I wanted to uh jump off on in terms of kind of thinking about Harry and his characterization against kind of our understanding of the Vienna as it's depicted here is um I we haven't touched yet on the the big uh speech he gives that is kind of the yes. the, the oft quoted uh part of this movie which is well own edition uh the the whole uh cuckoo clock speech that happens after the scene on the ferris wheel and i think that um what's fascinating to me is because this is one of the points that i had like known about the movie before long before watching it and so i i had known it divorced of its particular context of the film within the film but um i think what makes it work specifically within the film in a way that just kind of Uh, Excising it and like excerpting it uh, doesn't is that in that entire passage, you get a sense of. Particularly Harry's own angle on this and his own sort of way of kind of rationalizing what it is that he's doing. Um, and it, it, to him it becomes this sort of thing where he all of what he's doing can be justified if it's in the name of something of use, something that is like significant within the long run. Coming out of it, he's less concerned about the particular people that are involved and the the lives that are lost so much as what happens if i do this in the long run and i think that that um that particularly is uh that that's something that um i think really kind of sets him apart from where the other characters are coming from but also it becomes um it becomes this sort of thing where that rationalizes kind of how he is in that particular scene this sort of idea that uh all of these people that are to him far below him on the ground are disposable can be gotten rid of and i think that that's where especially the the shot of harry kind of like coming out of the the night in the destroyed building in the climax is especially kind of powerful and kind of adds into that because to him he's kind of profiting off of this destroyed city life that is around him he is literally rising out of the 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 rubble that is being kept there and i think that that's kind of i i think that's a big sort of factor into kind of understanding where his sort of motivations and worldview lies among other people's here
4: yeah, that's a really great point. And it's fascinating that you saw this speech divorced from its context because that it, it totally makes sense that you would remember that about this movie from that or that generally pop culture would. Um, it's also like the the first time I saw it. I didn't like it as much as I like it now looking back on it because it did feel very much like the sort of especially knowing that Orson Welles wrote it. It's like, oh, this is this is where he explains the ideology of the movie. And we all nod along and listen because that's exactly what it is. And it's it's not not that right, but it it really is so well characterized within the context of this movie because he is being honest. He is saying how he really feels, but he is also very consciously casting himself in a certain role right? It's like, this is this sort of radical honesty that he's hitting Holly with is in such direct contrast to the way everybody else is. It's like, that's, you're never going to get this from Calloway. Calloway is going to be like, look what a monster Harry is for what he did to these kids. You're never going to get it from Anna who wants to believe that that uh, Harry is this sort of like perfect never grew up symbol of the old world of of old romance, but but like Harry is is almost he's helping Holly become the sort of propaganda machine that he needs to be right because he basically like he tells him on that Ferris wheel like look I'm a villain, but he he's like but I am also exactly what you are working on. It's like the governments have their five year plans and and I've got mine right. He like refuses to give. Uh, Holly, this, this context of villainy without also implicating the storytelling itself, right? Without saying like, you know, when you bring me in, like when this turns out the way it's going to turn out, like, remember that the reason it turned out that way is because that was what, like what we were aiming for all along, what, like what these powers were always going to make this into. And in the process, he's like, I know I have to be the villain. And so we're going to get Orson Welles to play. The villain right and monologue about being the villain, and it 's like there right, like there it is, like there's the villain that you want, but like what happens? what happens when you turn him in? What happens when you make him the problem? like what does that all lead to, and what it leads to is like the beat goes on, right, even like as he said it's like this is this is the people who get theirs are going to continue to get theirs, and they're going to do it by screwing everybody else, and this has all been a part of that same system.
2: Yeah, it's it's fascinating that you bring that up, Harry, because I feel like when when I did my first watch, it's it's kind of tough not to fall into that particular trap just because he's he's played by Orson Welles. You are you're taken in by this charismatic scoundrel to the point where you kind of forget that like the whole The whole aura of Orson Welles is that he's playing these charismatic scoundrels, but also that they're still scoundrels underneath. And I think that that's that's where kind of his casting, even with as little screen time as he has here, is as impactful as it is, because he's he's the kind of person where once you see him appear on screen, you see him give that speech in the Ferris wheel. You can see why Holly is like so easily lured into his charms, why he was like such a good friend why he would be conflicted to uh, turn him into Calloway. Um, But it's, it also becomes something where um, one of the things that is like, especially kind of noteworthy about uh, the Orson Welles performances in this era is he, never really uh excuses the fact that the characters beneath are just total scumbags it's it becomes that sort of thing where say for instance in like citizen kane you spend the first half of the movie understanding why this like charismatic young guy is charming everybody but the more and more layers of power that he he kind of takes on it becomes the sort of thing where you recognize kind of why he becomes this figure who is hated by everybody in his close circles and ruins the lives of everybody who has any sort of meaningful relationship with it's, it, it very much fits into the sort of mold of what an Orson Welles performance is even with as little time as he has in the film.
0: Wait, uh, I've never seen Citizen Kane, but it's, it's about a bad guy? I I don't know. Um, I'm really going to have to take this one forward uh, in my critical views of movies because that's that is news to me. Um, I just need a moment to process that. Uh, <laughs> that's that's usually where I, that's usually where I would open up uh, to final thoughts from anybody. Any little jotted notes, any things that were just fun to point out, things that aren't necessarily part of a larger thought, but just uh, that you want to get off your chest before we close out the episode with a quick game of Cody's Noties.
4: I mean, unfortunately, as listeners will know, I still have thoughts. I really what? liked, what, yeah, what Natalie said about um, about the Orson Wellesness of it all, and and about specifically the way that, like, it, it's such a tough tightrope in this movie, right? Because it's like he's not saying that that Harry is not either the charismatic person that. Uh Holly fell in love with that Anna fell in love with, or that he 's not the monster that Calloway thinks he is. He is both of those things right it 's like it 's it 's not that the narrative is false it 's just that the narrative also benefits this thing this like this evil power that's much more difficult to sort of course correct right it's like yeah harry's a monster right like he smuggled penicillin into this city and got a bunch of people killed and he did it because he didn't care about those people he tells you that right it's like he's he's terrible and like there's some kind of like justice quote unquote that should be coming to him but like solving the case right and saying like good job boys another win for the, the boys in blue let's all go home that's doing something too Right. And it, it's doing something that is going to continue to be done uh, forever and ever. Um, and I, what I really liked, the thing that I said first, and this will be my final thought so I can finally shut up, but um, is that like, I really like that this is a movie that is like, it's looking forward and back at the same time, similarly, right? Because it's like, to, To my mind, like the Harry Lime character, his speech and everything—it's like this isn't even different, right? Like the ruins are ruins now, so we can see things a little bit better. But like all of this system, this like parsing up of of the space by states and like the um, exploitation of people and the sublimination of their livelihoods uh, into this ongoing like macro narrative world narrative. It's like, it was still happening before world war II. We had the dust up and like things are settling back into exactly the same mechanization of what they were. You know what I mean? It's like they're, they're finding it. They're finding a way to keep moving. And the way that they're going to keep it moving is by using people like you and me. Um, And it, it, it does a really good job of sort of like, Doing all of that without excusing any of it. Right. Uh, and it, it it's harder than if they would have just made it so that like, oh, Harry was a frame job or like, oh, Harry really was the only evil mastermind here. But none of those things are true. It is more complicated. And it's like that complication in our inability to handle it is why the people who benefit in the end from that sort of thing are going to continue to benefit from it because like we're all holly looking for the hollywood ending right it's it's brutal it's a it's a wildly brutal movie my Uh, oh go ahead
2: oh no uh, that's that's okay um i um i think the the two last uh i i don't necessarily have like big larger thoughts to wrap up on because i feel like we've touched on them but like Mm -hmm. two kind of like final points that i think to me were particularly noteworthy when i was digging into this um that i wanted to bring up is just that uh in terms of talking about the kind of very sort of uh tight mechanics of the film uh one thing that stood out is supposedly in the original american release there are 11 minutes of footage that are cut out of this which i i would love to figure out like what that is just because it feels like removing even one slice of this kind of makes makes it kind of difficult to kind of follow the complete picture i know at least one of those supposedly is the uh dancer that's in the club uh right before uh Holly goes to meet Anna before the Harry Lime reveal but I I'm not entirely sure why any more of it would have had to have been cut uh and that's that's kind of fascinating to me um the other thing is that uh supposedly the ending was a point of contention among uh Graham Greene who wrote the novella that became the film and David O Selznick both of whom uh in the in the original version of it it did end with a reconciliation between holly and anna which feels like a very <laughs> yeah that's anti- <laughs> no good <laughs> it feels anti-climactic it feels like a betrayal of like everything afterward it was reed who was fighting with them and being like no this this having this downer ending makes sense for everything we've built up to uh, which I'm, I'm very glad he had won out in the end just Wait, because the
0: yeah did you say that that was reed versus the writer and producer yep Oh my God. Can you imagine being the writer of that book and saying like, okay, this incredibly like thematically consistent ending. I don't want that. Let, just get, stick to what I fucking wrote.
4: <laughs> I mean, it just- is sad. It's fascinating, right? Because like, it's it's just like that that dialogue in the beginning. It's like if that was if that was Holly's point of view instead of the the Carol Reed dialogue. It's like the movie would still work, but it would just be more nihilistic, right? It w- it would be like if there was a reconciliation at the end. It would be like oh, like everybody falls for it. You know, there is no hope. Right. Like we got him right? again, and so like yeah. it's it's wild because it's like it is a downer ending, but it's like it's less sad than that ending would have been because it would be like if if Anna loses her soul to this idea that that Holly becomes the new Harry, then like, we're all fucked, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, if any if anybody else becomes Harry, we're all fucked. Uh, then the po- podcast is way out of balance. Um, my final thought is that uh, in the funeral scene that opens, well, one of the opening scenes of the movie, all I could think about was that fucking bit from Mr. Hulo's holiday where they drop the tire in the wet uh, leaves and it becomes a wreath and they hand it off to the guy who's. Uh, burying the person that was a really fucking funny bit and it's telling that how how much how sticky that is in my mind that like I don't know 30 40 episodes of this podcast later and hundreds of movies later I still remember it every time that I see a wreath at a funeral um, that's literally my final thought uh, and you didn't think that yours were high-minded Natalie uh, Cody Aaron anything that you wanted to get off your chests?
3: um I don't I, we gestured at it. I don't know if we spoke specifically to it. This is like a really, I mean, we talked about some great quotes. This is like a really well-written movie specifically with like, they're just some banger exchanges and like one-off lines that really just like, Ooh, they really, they really hit me and, and landed nice. Um, Anna saying, sometimes he said, I laughed too much. Um, Papescu saying humanity is a duty, uh, major Callaway after seeing sergeant pain put in a slide of a rhino's rear end just going pain 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 <laughs> a lot of great like lines and line readings um yeah i don't know uh so shout out to words
4: uh the the fact that the big the big british meatball soldier is the only guy who has read and really likes the books by the american is so funny to me That's and, like one of, and he's gunned like down the in the sewer jokes. for
1: being
0: well read yeah it's so good <laughs>
1: uh the guy the the guy the the literary speech who asks him where he would rank james joyce (laughs) and he doesn't know how to respond (laughs) to that one that's very good
2: um it's speaking to both those points like two of my favorite like little things are that uh for one uh as as somewhat of a background i used to work in like uh literary events and so like having basically people slowly lose disinterest and spill out after asking like inane questions just feels it hits a little too close to home um but also with with um that that british soldier asking about or just gushing to holly about his books one of one of my favorite little like editing details here is um after the two of them first meet and he starts going off about like how much he loves his books there's a fade when they get to the hotel and he's still talking about them which is (laughs) it, it feels like he's been talking about them the entire time to this disinterested holly who could not care less
0: oh man it is weirdly comedic for being such a dour, depressing movie. Um, cool. Well, that should uh, wrap it up then on the actual discussion. Uh, Natalie, are you ready to help us ring in Cody's Noties? Do you have a little bit of time? I am. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I don't know if Harry briefed you on the melody, but it is sister, sister. And it goes a little bit like this. Harry, give us
4: the count in. It goes a little something like <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Noties. Wow. Thank you.
3: For that uh, extremely sensible, like my name, uh, introduction. Uh, lately, the third man it, we talked about it a little bit. You know, it's been getting uh, reappraised or even just like rediscovered uh, after so many years, and because of that trend, it's it, we see we see it uh, getting added to more and more kind of contemporary, like greatest films of all time lists, uh, and I got. You know, I got to thinking about, you know, say what's a metric that would be a somewhat reasonable barometer for what uh, movie buffs would like these days. And then I remembered (gasps) Letterboxd. Yeah, we talk about it on the show more than we should. Um, Specifically, I talk about it more than I should. Uh, But Letterboxd, you know, it's like Goodreads, but with films, you can log, rate, and review the things you watch. Um, It's free to use, so this is not a paid plug. Uh, But the site, among many other things, it even has an aggregated list of uh, top you know, it's top 250 highest rated narrative feature films uh, that come from user ratings. Uh, so spoilers, The Third Man is currently only number 160 on that list. You know, got, a, got a ways to go. Um, some fine company, to be sure. Uh, so the question then becomes, or rather a question becomes, what films top the letterboxed top 250? And there's literally, literally only one way for us to find out, and that's through a game I like to call Try Love Feud. Uh, and it is now that won't. Yeah, Trivia Mafia rules uh, are in effect for the rest of this segment. And by that, I mean, use your noodles and not your Googles or letterboxed app to find the answers you seek. Um, so for the, the lengthy introduction uh, or reintroduction incoming, so buckle up. Uh, for those who haven't participated before, this will be uh, an experience somewhat inspired by the fam- uh, famous game show Family Feud, uh, though adapted a bit differently. What I've done is I've collected the top 20 films on Letterboxd ranked by best cumulative rating as of February 14th. Uh, happy Valentine's Day, belatedly. Uh, what I will do is ask uh, each of you one at a time for a guess of a movie included in that list. And every guess is going to come with a 10 second window. And these are just going to be 10 seconds that I'll be counting out uh, silently on my side. Every round also comes with three strikes, Per person, um, so you know. So for the purposes of this game, everybody will have three strikes, and if you get three strikes, you'll be out for the the rest of it. Um, and just to kind of outline what gets you points and what gets you strikes: to get points, you'll need to correctly guess a movie that is on that list during your turn within the time window, and every correct guess is going to get you a point. If you make an incorrect guess, so you know you guess a movie that's not in the Letterbox Top Twenty. Um, then you'll get a strike. If you have a correct movie guess, but you state an incomplete title of the movie, you know, let's say somebody says Harry Potter, then that'll get you a strike. Um, and then if you, uh, if you fail to guess a movie before that time window, that 10 seconds is up, I will just announce that time is up and you'll get a strike. All that is to say, just, you know, guess a movie, uh, no matter what, if you can, um, as you feel you're approaching the end of, of your, your time window. So I've randomly generated an order for this game and that order... Excuse me, it's going to be Natalie, Harry, Jason and Aaron. And then we're just going to run that on the loop for as long as uh, as long as there are available guesses, you know, for as long as we need to. Whenever it's the next person's turn, I will say that person is on the clock. And that's when I'll start doing my silent countdown. Um, We have a super producer here who may also end up piping in some appropriate back. There we go. So you hear that
4: music play. That doesn't uh, sound like the right
0: key. Does that sound fucked up to anybody else? That, sounds, that sounded okay to me.
2: Okay, that sounds fine.
4: All right. Yeah, I, I believe I, you. I would point out that that is from the game show Jeopardy. Jason, not Family Feud. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> <laughs> That's
3: right, Jason. Uh, the winner of this game will be the person with the most correctly guessed movies over the course of. The game, uh, I think I've exhausted everything and more that I could have possibly said. Are there any questions before we jump into this? Or do we feel... feel
1: so this is ahead. by, this is ranking user ratings rankings, right. not popularity number of logs or anything, purely right, five star. Okay, sure. Correct.
3: Yep, yep, yep. Uh, yeah, we usually do activities in games based on Letterbox popularity, but right, this is going right by user star rating. So the, yeah, the highest cumulative user-rated movies, uh, narrative films specifically on Letterboxd. I don't want any anybody from the peanut gallery to guess, mm, Cowboy Bebop, the television show, because it is, <laughs> it all, is one of the highest-rated things all, on Letterboxd. We all do but sound
0: like that, As actually. well, it should be
3: yeah which correct yeah i'm not i'm not disputing that uh but yeah we're sticking to narrative films i've got the top 20 here uh what on is a, list. okay
4: sorry ahead. No, no, ahead. no 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 I, it's not a real question like what is a narrative film are you saying that like koyana Scotsi doesn't qualify like what is what does that mean this MF- you're, right, you're right
3: you should have kept that one to yourself This
4: you MF think, yeah
0: he doesn't think that koyana Scotsi is a narrative Folks, film what Just is the, fuck off the podcast how do you define <laughs> natalie you right, gotta continue. dunk on this motherfucker
2: Well, well, you see, uh, stick to one or the other. All facts are all fiction.
4: Ooh, that's That's, damn. That's freaking. He had another line in the wings, just (laughs) in case. Already more Uh, prepared for this than I have been for any episode.
3: And also to make sure, quite sure that my ass is uh, far and away from getting got. Narrative films is the terminology that Letterboxd uses. Getting into the actual game, I've prolonged it long enough. Um, Natalie, uh, go ahead and belly up to the bar first. You've got first crack at guessing a movie that is in the Letterboxed for the purposes of this top 20. So the top 20 user rated films on Letterboxed. Natalie, you are on the clock. Give us a title.
2: Uh, Just off of the recency of Letterboxd, I'm going to guess Parasite.
3: Natalie guesses Parasite. Parasite. I'll say is number one on that list. So that is a point Ooh. for Natalie Nor, no strikes earned for Natalie. So far, we move on to Harry. There are 19 remaining, uh, filmies that need to be guessed. Uh, so Harry, take your pick. You are on the clock.
4: I feel like this is a foregone conclusion. Natalie has just sniped us, but I'm going to go with seven samurai, I guess. Seven samurai says, Harry seven samurai comes in appropriately at number seven.
3: Uh, so that is a point for Harry. No strikes earned for that guess. Let's keep the momentum going with our super produce Jason. Jason, you are on the clock. Uh, Blade Runner 2049. Blade Runner 2049 is the guess. Uh, Blade Runner 2049 is unfortunately not on the list.
0: Ooh, that must, is have a been 20, must have been number 21.
4: It must have been. Um, I'll have to check the tape. It was my three-star uh, rating last year that really sent it, <laughs> it down the tubes. It was going to be Fuck on there. You. We were like, oh, shit, Harry gave it a three. We got to get, get it out of there. Oh, <laughs> Harry putting his
3: foot on the scale a little bit there. Um, hopefully, Well, yeah, no point deductions for the purposes of this game. Uh, but that is a strike for Jason. Uh, so he's got two strikes remaining. We're going to move along to Aaron for Aaron's first guess. Aaron, you are on the clock.
1: Uh, yeah, I wrote down three guesses in my little notepad doc, uh, and two were taken already. I'm going to go Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Portrait of a Lady on
3: Fire is the guess. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Comes in at number 17 on the list. So Aaron is on the board with the point. No strikes earned for that one. And we're going to mosey our way back up to the top of the queue. Uh, Natalie looking to uh, capitalize on her success from nailing Parasite with the first guess of the game. Natalie, you are now back on the clock.
2: This is primarily off of seeing where the average was when I logged it last year, but I'm going to say Fight Club. Fight Club is the guess very
3: good guess, but it unfortunately did not make the cut. Uh, Wow. Damn. Kind of surprising to me, too. I'm not going to lie. But yeah, that is uh, a strike earned. Unfortunately, you got two strikes remaining for the game. We're going to head back to Harry. Harry, you are on the clock.
4: That is the funniest possible legacy for Fight Club. I'm going to go with Mad Max Fury Road. Sorry, Jason. (laughs) Mad Max Fury Road is the guess.
3: Not only is it not on the list, but it just... Dropped off as of like the last, Son of <laughs> old, like, yeah, very, fuck very fuck recently. I, that was in the that was in the notes for the list. It was like and uh, just recently. Dropped yeah, off a near a near miss, uh, a, a, a swing and a miss. Um, but only strike one uh, for this at bat. This at bat of Harry. So that's uh, two strikes remaining for him. We're going back to Jason, who has yet to get on the board. He's still got two strikes left. A lot of movies left to get picked. Jason, you are on the clock. Spider-Man no way home. Spider-Man No Way Home is the guess Oh, let me double Let's check the list here Spider-Man No Way Home Did not make the cut, somehow Somehow it did not make the cut So that is Jason's second strike We're going to move along To Aaron, who has no strikes Obtained as of yet, the last remaining Participant with no strikes
1: Aaron, you are on the clock I'm purely just going off of recency At this point, uh, Dune dune was guessed by aaron
3: dune did not make the cut uh, yeah uh, that's you hate to see it um you love to see dune denny just Um, getting
4: trashed you hate to well you kind of love to see it to be honest but you know do we do we though villeneuve canceled question mark um
0: harry you're the the one who said this
4: (laughs) i told you he's fine he's fine (laughs) He's fine. Right. Dune is good. It's good. It's fine, <laughs> and like we are we're all doing there. okay, aren't hey. we? Uh, no, I'm not. we? I have, have,
0: I have one yeah. <laughs> strike left. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we we are mo- we are moving back uh so just to to recap scores uh we've got a three-way tie for first uh with Natalie Harry and Aaron having one point apiece Jason um has yet to get on the board he's so close i can feel well, it well nobody's I, I, challenging sure that, me uh, think about it
0: this way nobody is challenging <sighs> me i have no also in this place nobody nobody dare come near me you know uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, you cut out a little early there. I'm sure the last. I think he's couple making syllables... fun of
4: me. That's a, that's oh. a bit. Uh, I'm you know, obviously I'm not making. I'm,
0: I'm trying not trying to make fun of my good friend. Oh, that'd be. Real. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> that is, extremely good. Um, it, we're gonna we're gonna move along. Uh, I, I'm sure Natalie is chomping at the bit to guess. Uh, so Natalie, you are back on the clock.
2: Uh, let's make it topical and go back in time. Let's say Citizen Kane.
3: Citizen Kane
2: is the guess. Oh, that would be
3: so thematically satisfying if it were on the list, but it is not. That is unfortunately strike to um, contemporary audi- audiences. Uh, not not a fan of of the OGs, it turns out. Um, no, I'm sure it's it's on there somewhere, but missed the cut for the top 20. We're going to move along to Harry. Um, Harry, who's got one strike and one point. Harry, you are on the clock.
4: I'm just, I'm embodying my inner film bro, and I'm going to go with 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> Film Sensibilities lead Harry to
3: 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, it did not make the cut, unfortunately. Now we're just saying a bunch of these that like, I'm also kind of like, really, that didn't make it? That's kind of, that's really weird. Um, but yeah, 2001 A Space Odyssey did not make the cut. That is strike two for Harry. We're back to Jason. Jason, who's got two strikes. This is uh, the last, you know, uh, two strikes against him. He's got to foul foul off this one or put one in play to, to have a
0: shot here. But Jason, we're rooting for You, you are on the clock. I have known that I was not going to uh ladies and gentlemen I have known that I was not going to compete in this ever since I got my second strike I've had this guess chambered uh it's kind of like like the last bullet you've you been yourself I'm going to be I'm really pissed if you gems. Oh, never uncut gems
3: uncut gems is the guess Dun, 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 dun. I'm sorry, Jason. That is your third strike. You are out <sighs> of contention. Um, strong it, guesses it all around. So far. The,
4: the weekend's one-star review really set that back.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? Did you know Julia Fox was um, uh, Benny Safdie's muse on Uncut Jams? Did y'all hear that?
1: No, it's, I, I did I've hear that. I've been hearing a lot of Julia Fox news <laughs> recently, okay. but none related to that film. Uh, you know what? I,
3: I, I switched it. I was in a gym by myself, and I switched it. Nobody was there to see it. I will, uh, I, I will, I will cop to that. Um, and I will also cop to it being Aaron's turn. Aaron, you are back on
1: the clock. Yeah. Uh, in the mood for love. Uh, you may just have just hit- give my There point. you go. Give, give me my point. In the what? Mood for Love is you didn't, the film. That he in the mood for.
3: fully cut off. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you definitely rooted yourself, and I got concerned. Um, another really good bit, uh, if that is a bit that was done, but In the Mood for Love is the guess. Yeah. In the Mood for Love did not make the top 20. Are you 20. serious? He made the
1: top,
3: oh made the top uh, is either top, I cannot 20, the top 25 me. or top 30. Uh,
1: just, that was another oh. near, near miss. I was so, um, I was like grinning with that one. I was like, yeah, that one's a sure bet. You know, but- cracked open.
3: You were preparing for, uh, yeah, the kombucha shower that was sure to flow once you got that guaranteed point, but it was not guaranteed. Turns out, um, kombucha does not sponsor the pod, so um, that's the end of that. We're back to the top here. Uh, we've got uh, uh, a lot of final calls uh, on the board here. Um, a lot of, uh, 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 well, everybody's at at least two strikes. Um, so Natalie, need a need a, a correct guess here to stay alive. Natalie, you are on the clock.
2: Um, I'm going to stick with recent, but not too recent. Let's say Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction is the guess. Now where could this have
3: ended up? This is not on the list either. Man, the, the, the flurry uh, continues of dude bro, film bro movies. I feel that, like you get uh, in the
1: letterboxed like demographic that, that would shit on Tarantino, you know? Like I feel <laughs> yeah, that's, I suppose. you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I
3: suppose that's right. But that yeah, that is unfortunately the third strike uh very valiant guess and, and valiant valiant guesses all around. Let's uh let's see whether or not Harry and or Aaron can take sole ownership of the lead, starting with Harry, who is up next. Harry, you are on the clock.
4: What was the last A24 movie? Uh, oh, wait, that was like- Google's, not Googles. Uh, I'm going to go with, um, Jesus, uh, Jaws.
3: Jaws is the guess. And uh, jaw. I'm trying to think of a clever way to say that. That was incorrect. Um, but that is, Harry, your third strike. Jaws did not cut it, unfortunately. Sorry to- um, what, the the first blockbuster ever or something like that? Um so Some yeah, her- Yep, there we go. Um Uh, Bruce the Shark or something Uh, Aaron is the last uh, one here with remaining uh, with remaining guesses he's got two strikes he's at one point which is still tied for the lead with uh, uh, two other fine participants here so if Aaron needs a correct guess here to take sole ownership of the victory otherwise it will be uh, a three a three way lead a three person tied for the lead I'm vamping way too much Aaron you are on the clock
1: um die hard die hard
3: ladies and germs is the guess die hard is aaron's third strike of the game god i will now i will now read off yeah Yeah, i will now read off the, the starting from 20 and going up to one the top 20 user rated letterboxed films and I'm just going to rattle through them uh, because of um, not eating up more time than is necessary but number 20 Schindler's List number 19 Goodfellas number 18 The Dark Knight Number 17, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, number sixteen, the human
4: condition one, no greater love. Really surprised.
3: What? None of
4: that. It's it's here. everybody who logged it said it was a five because they were terrified to give it anything else because it would ruin their <laughs> film bro credentials. That's right. Uh, number fifteen, Yee, Yee. Number fourteen,
3: Spider-Man into the spider verse. My ass is thir- got, by the way, I am uh, <laughs> Yeah, also, yes. Uh, number thirteen, a brighter summer's day. Number 12, The Shawshank Redemption. Number 11, High and Low. Number 10, Spirited Away. Number 9, A Dog's Will. Number 8, 12 Angry Men. Number 7, Seven Samurai. Number 6, The Human Condition 3, A Soldier's Prayer. Number 5, The Godfather Part 2. Number 4, The Godfather. Number 3, Harakiri. Number 2, Come and See. And number 1, the highest user-rated movie on Letterboxd, Parasite. Um, And again, uh, reaffirming the scores here, um, Natalie, Harry and Aaron tied for the the games, you know, a a third of the trophy will be sent to each of you. Um, Jason, thank you also for your participation and for providing the lovely music. And thank you to everybody for either tuning into or for participating in Try Love Feud.
0: And thank you right back to you, good friend Cody, for always hosting a wonderful, rousing edition of Cody's Noties at the end of every episode of Tri Love. Uh, thank you very much, Natalie, for joining us for this episode. Uh, let the folks know where they can find you once again.
2: Yeah, thank you again for having me. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Natalie's nataliesnotinit, um, and you can also find, uh, I feel like, I I dropped the ball by not mentioning this right off the top, but you can find my, uh, writing voice, what have you, a number of different places. Uh, most regularly the Indie Heads podcast, uh, although not quite super regularly, it's a rotating group of people. So come and go there. Um, but, uh, recently uh you could read my writing at paste uh you will also be able to uh as a slight tease read some film writing for me uh in the coming months Ooh. so stay tuned for
0: Ooh. that and we will uh and we hope to see you at the trial on sometime natalie uh let us know Let's if there's anything it. else playing there that you want to check out uh and maybe talk about because we're always open to guests uh especially ones as eloquent as yourself for right now we are going to sign off and call this uh, episode 162 of Trilove Literal Roundtable Podcast. It's about movies we've saw or people we met at or through the Trilon Cinema. Uh, find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Find the Trylon at Trylon Cinema and at Trylon.org. Uh, Once again, my name is Jason. I'm one of your hosts. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Nintendoofus. You might want to put an ( Amerika) HTTPS colon backslash backslash just to make sure that you are SSL encrypted when you visit that page through your favorite web browser. Go to google.com for a list of the best ones. Thank you very much for listening.
3: Yeah, some very helpful browsing tips there, Jason. Thank you very much for that. We don't talk about that enough, I think. Uh, And thank you, Natalie, for joining us for our 162nd episode. 162, by the way. Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, Back to, you know, time being a flat circle. The pandemic has really, uh, it's really fucked that up. It feels like last week we were doing our our dumb, not dumb, amazing Goofy Movie Table Read. Um, We'll have to figure out eventually, uh, before we know it, what we're doing after that. Um... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I got nothing else to say. I've been Cody Narvison. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH.
4: Folks, I'm looking at my notebook right now and right between Jaws, which I I skipped over The Dark Knight and right under Jaws, I had Spirited Away written down. I had it in my hands. All I had to do was trust the film bro inside of me, but instead I went with something, some bullshit. I was so I was so close. I also wrote down Hirokazakura Ada's shoplifters, which is probably like not in the top 200, so I probably didn't deserve to win. Uh, but I've been Harry. If you want to talk to me about the filmography of Hirokazakura Ada, you can find me on Twitter at shiitakeharry. Harry.
1: My name is Aaron, and uh, really, the the three of us winning, including the guest here, uh, I think that that's kind of the. But but Jason specifically losing is kind of the best thing that could happen anyway. So, uh, my name uh, again is Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please, Jason, come on.
3: Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. Like the fella says, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly.